Namaskaram. Um, before I start, I will first apologize and ask you to bear with me. I've got a very bad cough, and so my talking may be interrupted by coughing. Um, and because of this, I'm not sure how how I'll, how long I'll be able to continue, but I'll try as as well as I can. Um, Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. Um, the first question I am going to address today is a, a question asked in a comment on a video on, on my YouTube channel. This comment was asked, was written about three weeks ago. Someone wrote, um, Most respected Swamiji, we have received adequate explanations and analyses. Can you state what one has to do to obtain Brahman, pure Advaita, or pure consciousness? What that is, is well and clearly described, done. But with the sole exception of Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi, nobody has actually attained pure awareness, have they? That is because we do not know exactly what you want us to do. Um, this is... Um, this is typical of many questions that I'm asked. Um, people sometimes, I mean, they say the same thing in another way by saying, we're not interested in the theory or we have had enough of the theory. Um, we want to know about the practice. In Bhavan's uh, teachings, it's not really a matter of theory because theory is an explanation and theories change over time. What Bhagavan is teaching us is metaphysical principles. And the metaphysical principles that Bhagavan teach us, teaches us are directly related to the practice. So if we understand the metaphysical principles that Bhagavan teaches us in works like Uludu, Napadu, Nana, Upadeshundia, Amabide, and also in Aranachastutipancha and other works, in his own original writings, if we understand these metaphysical principles correctly, we will inevitably understand the practice because the, the practice is so um, so intimately related to the metaphysical principles he's teaching us. He's not teaching us the metaphysical principles for any other reason except understanding how to put it into practice. So understanding Bhagavan's teachings is essential. If we understand his teachings clearly and comprehensively, we will... We, we cannot understand clearly and comprehensively without thereby understanding the practice, because it's all so intimately um, related. In order to understand um, Bhagavan's teachings correctly, three things are necessary. Sravana, Manana, and Nidityasana. Sravana literally means hearing. But uh, what it implies in this context is attentively hearing or reading Bhagavan's own original writings. Uh, because if we do not read them with sufficiently, I mean, if you do, we don't, do not read them attentively enough, we will not understand them. Because though Bhagavan's teachings are very simple, they're also very deep and very subtle. So it requires very close attention to what, to what he's actually saying. And in order to make sense of what he's saying, we need to think about it very carefully. That is what is called manana. Manana means thinking, reflecting, and making sense of what Bhagavan has taught us. And most important of all is nidityasana. Nidityasana literally means deep contemplation. That is the practice of atmavichara, attending to ourselves. So, all these are necessary. If we expect, think that we can understand Atmavichara without paying close attention to what Bhagavan has taught us and making sense of it, getting a clear and comprehensive understanding of what he's teaching us, we will not understand the practice correctly. So what is the, what is the practice? It, it is implied in so many of the teachings of Bhagavan, but he has expressed it most clearly and unambiguously in um in one sentence of um the 16th paragraph of nana what he says in that sentence is sada kalamum manate atma vil 
Vaitirupati Bhutan, Atmavicharam in Rupaya. The literal meaning of that is the name Atmavichara is only for always keeping the mind on, on oneself, on Atma. When he says the, the name Atmavichara is only for this, he means this is Atmavichara. The Atmavichara is nothing other than always keeping our mind on ourselves. Um, what does it mean when we talk about keeping our mind on something? If you, if um, in a, um, for example, in a classroom, if if students, their mind is wandering, the teacher will say, put your mind on the, on the subject we're, we're discussing. That means your attention, like keeping the mind on something is keeping our attention on it or putting the mind on something means putting our attention on it. So what Bhagavan is clearly and unambiguously implies in this sentence is that Apnavichara is nothing other than always being self-attentive, always keeping our attention on ourself. So what does it mean to keep our attention on ourself? For this, we need to understand Bhagavan's teachings a little bit more broadly. If we, so long as we take ourselves to be any of the five sheaths, that is the physical body, the life that animates the physical body, in other words, the prana, the mind that operates in it, in this context, mind means the grosser functions of the mind, the intellect and the will. These are called the five sheaths, panchakosha. We are not any of these things. All these things are objects known by us. We are the subject, the knower of all these objects. So, though we seem to be all these five sheaths, if we consider the matter carefully, we are not any of these, because these appear and disappear, um, but we always remain. So, whatever appears and disappears cannot be ourself. Anything in whose absence we are aware of ourself is not our, is not ourself. So we are not any of these five sheets. We are a knower of these five sheets. We are a subject. Um, so whereas these five sheets are constantly changing, we are unchanging. And I say we here, we need to make, there's a further distinction we need to make. Um, but we need to make this distinction. Uh, we, we need to clearly understand this distinction. That is, that which identifies itself as the five sheaves is not the pure awareness that we actually are. It is ego. So what is the relationship between ego and pure awareness? Ego is what we seem to be. Pure awareness is what we actually are. So the relationship between ego and pure awareness is like the relationship between the illusory snake and the rope that it actually is. There are not two things there. There's not a snake and a rope. There's only one thing. One thing that is actually there is, only, is a rope, but it seems to be a snake. Likewise, what actually exists is only pure awareness. But now we are not experiencing ourselves as pure awareness because we have risen as ego. Um, the pure awareness is the awareness I am, whereas ego is the same awareness I am mixed and conflated with adjuncts, as I am this body, I am this bundle of five sheaves. So the ego bereft of adjuncts is pure awareness. So ego and pure awareness are not two different things. The difference between ego and pure awareness is not a difference in us two. It's not a difference in the substance. It's a difference in, um, it's a difference in appearance only. So when Bhagavan says we need to keep our mind on ourselves or keep our attention on ourselves, some people ask, what is the self that he's referring to? Is it ego or is it our real self? This is a this is um this question shows a lack of understanding because it's like supposing we are walking with Bhagavan along a a, a path through a forest in the dim light of dusk. We see something lying ahead on the path ahead of us, which looks to us like a snake. Bhagavan assures us it is not a snake, it's only a rope. But we're still afraid, because to us it still looks like a, a snake. So Bhagavan knows that 
the only way to dispel our fear is for us to actually see it as it is. So he will say, it is just a, it's just a rope. Look at it carefully and see. If we ask him, which it should we look at? Should we look at the snake or at the rope? He will obviously say, look at the snake. Because in our view, it seems to be a snake. But what it actually is, is only a rope. If we look at the snake carefully enough, we will see that it is just a rope. Likewise, if we attend to ourselves carefully enough, now we, before we attend to ourselves, we seem to be ego. That rising eye that identifies itself as this bundle of five sheaths called body. That's what we seem to be. But what we actually are is pure awareness. So if we attend to ourselves carefully enough, we will see that we are not what we now seem to be, namely this ego, but we are just pure awareness, which is what we always actually are. This is why I say to understand the practice correctly, we need to understand the teachings correctly. If we don't understand the, the, the metaphysical principles that Bhagavan is teaching us, we will not understand this correctly. I've cited just one example of, of what Bhagavan says about the practice of Abhmavichara, but this is implied in so many places. For example, in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, Bhagavan describes the nature of ego. He, in the last line of the verse, he describes ego as Uruvatra Peyande. Uruvatra means um, formless. Um, Pei means a, a demon or phantom or evil spirit. Ande means ego. So this ego is a formless evil spirit or phantom. It is formless because it has no form of its own. Ego seems to have a form only when it identifies itself with our body as I. And, um, but it's actually always formless. Even when it identifies itself with a form, it is actually formless. And when he says it is a, an evil spirit or phantom or demon, the implication is it's something with no substance of its own. That is, as ego, we borrow our substance, that is our existence and our and awareness, from satchit, which is what we actually are. Satchit means pure being awareness. So that is, it is from satchit that we borrow our existence, sat, and our awareness, chit. And it is from a body that we borrow our form. So ego is a conflation of a pure awareness with these forms. But the form that we take ourselves to be, that is the mind, sorry, the, the physical form of the body, the life within the body, all the physiological processes, breathing and so on, the, um, the mind, that means the grosser functions of the mind, the intellect and the will, all of these are jada. Jada means they are not aware. They seem to be aware because we identify them as ourselves. So ego is called chit jada granti. It is a conflation or entanglement of chit and jada. Chit means pure awareness. Of course, pure awareness is never entangled with anything. But from the perspective of ego, we as pure awareness seem to be entangled with these um with these adjuncts, but are all um, these five sheets, but are all jada. Jada means they're not aware. That is, this body, this um, uh, the life within the body, all the physiological, the life is manifest in the form of physiological functions such as breathing. The mind, meaning the mind in the sense of uh, um, perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on these grosser aspects of the mind, they're all objects known by us. The thoughts that constitute the mind are things known by us. Um, the intellect, the, the judging, discriminating, discerning function of the mind, that is also an object known by us. We know the workings of the intellect. Um, and the will that consists, um, in its grosser form, it consists of likes, dislikes, desires, and attachments. But the seeds that give rise to these are what are called vasanas, but inclinations. So the will is essentially just vasanas. These vasanas, these inclinations, are things known by us. So they're all jada. But we are that which knows all these things. So we are, we, we, we are Chaitanya. We have that awareness. So Bhagavan often described ego 
as the thought called I. He calls it a thought because it is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, which are all thoughts. But though ego is a thought, it's a thought or unlike any other thought, because it is the only thought that is endowed with awareness. So when Bhagavan says that we have to fix our mind on ourselves, that means we have to fix our mind on I am. I am is both our existence and our awareness. Because what we actually are is just awareness. So I am means I exist. So that is our existence. And our existence is itself awareness. That is what we actually are is just awareness. So we just we have to fix our attention on ourselves, not as any of these five sheaths, but just as the fundamental awareness I am. So when Bhagavan says but we need to fix our mind on ourselves. He means we need to fix our mind on this fundamental being awareness, I am. Bhagavan often spoke about I am in order to distinguish our real nature, which is just I am, from ego, which is the adjunct-completed awareness, I am this or I am that. I am this or I am that is our identification, our identity. I am is our existence. So I am is real, I am this or that is unreal. So all we have to do is to fix our attention on ourselves. Um, in one place in Mahasha's Gospel, where Bhagavan explains that ego is chit-jada-granti, he says, in your investigation into the source of the ahambriti, ahambriti means I thought, so it's another term for ego, in your investigation into the source of the ahambriti, you take the essential chit aspect of ego. So it inevitably leads to that pure awareness that you actually are. That means we are attending to ourselves, not as any of these adjuncts that we take ourselves to be, which are all jada, we're attending to ourselves at the mere awareness I am. To understand <laughs> what Bhagavan means by this, that is, these terms are very, very simple. But they're, though they're very simple, they're also deep and subtle, so we need to carefully think about it, what Bhagavan means when he says fix our attention on ourselves. He doesn't mean fix our attention on any object. Any object is something known by us, so it's not ourself. We have to fix our attention on ourselves, the knower, the awareness that knows all things. As I said, we don't have to worry about the, as far as the practice of self-investigation is concerned, we don't have to worry about the distinction between ego and pure awareness, because Essentially, they are one and the same. That is, ego is the pure awareness mixed and complete with adjunct. Though we seem to be attending to a knower of everything, we're actually attending to the underlying reality of that knower, which is pure awareness. So, if we understand this correctly, it is very, very clear and very simple. But we need to do careful sravana and careful manana. That is, we need to pay close attention to what Bhagavan said. And that doesn't mean everything was recorded in all books, because those who recorded conversations with Bhagavan often failed to grasp the subtleties of what he was saying. And what they recorded is what they understood rather than what he actually said or actually meant. So the, the most reliable source of Bhagavan's teachings is his own original writings. So if we don't know Tamil, in which he wrote most of his original writings, um, it doesn't matter. But we, we, we should be careful that whatever translations we read are clear and accurate translations that reflect accurately what he, what he intended to convey in Tamil. Um, we can explain this in another way. If we want to know something, if we want to see something, what do we do? We look at it. If we want to know something, we attend to it. So if we want to see what we actually are, if we want to know what we actually are, we have to attend to ourselves. So long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves, um, that cannot be a means to know what we actually are. To know what we actually are, we need to attend to ourselves. Um, just like you can't see the um, see one object by looking at a number of objects. You have to look, if you want to see something, you have to look at it. So if you want to see what we actually are, we need to look at ourselves. But obviously, 
we are not an object, so we cannot see ourselves with our physical eyes. We need to, when Bhagavan says we need to see ourselves, he means we need to attend to ourselves. In, in Akshram, like verse 40, 44, I think, he says, um, or 43 or 45, God, um, he says, Irambiaham, that means turning within. Within here means turning our attention back towards ourselves. That means daily, implies constantly, see yourself with the inner eye. So what does he mean by ahakan or inner eye? That is the eye of attention. Because we know all other things through the five senses. But what is the, the, the five senses are jada. They, they have no awareness of their own. So what is it that knows through the five senses? It's ego, that, that, that power of awareness. And that, that is what we call attention. Attention is the focusing of, of, our, of our awareness on one thing in preference to other things. So we, we need to, that, that inner eye is the attention. So we see ourselves with the inner eye, with the eye of attention. So all we need to do is to attend to ourselves. Earlier I started to talk about verse 25 of Uludhanapadu, <laughs> which is a very important verse because it, in this verse, Bhagavan very clearly explains the nature of ego. So as I said, in the last line of that verse, he says ego is a formless a formless phantom or evil spirit. Um, so, since it's a formless, it's got no form of its own. And since it's a, a phantom, it has no substance of its own. So how does it seem to exist? He explains it uh, from the beginning of the verse. In what he, he begins the verse by saying, Urupatri undam. That means grasping form, it comes into existence. Urupatri Nikkam, grasping form, it stands. Urupatri Undu, Mekha Ongam. That means grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Uruvitu Urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. Tedinal Otam Pidikam, if sought, it takes flight. So, what's he mean by this? When he says grasping form, it comes into existence. The form that ego first grasps is this form of five sheaths called a body. So we take these, these five sheaths, which Bhagavan refers to collectively as body, we grasp these as ourselves. So we now experience ourselves as this body, the life within the body, the mind, the intellect, and the will. These, though we can analyze them as five, we experience them collectively as ourselves. So that's the first form we grasp. And we cannot come into existence without grasping a form. Does that mean this form existed before ego came into existence? No. Because as he says in the next verse, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So when he says grasping form, it comes into existence. He implies that as soon as we rise as ego, we project a body and experience it as ourselves just as we do in a dream. As soon as we begin dreaming, um, we don't even notice the starting point of a dream because at the very moment it starts, we experience ourselves in a body and that body seems to be a continuity of this waking body. So it seems to be a continuity. So long as we're dreaming, our dreams seem to be a continuity of this waking state. Um, so likewise, that when we assume we rise as ego, we project a body and take it to be ourself. Urupatri Nikkam, grasping form, it stands. That means without grasping the form of this body, we cannot stand for a moment as ego. So ego is, is, is nothing but this false identification, I am this body. Without um, grasping a body as ourself, we cannot either come into existence or stand as ego. Then he says, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. That is, as soon as we experience ourselves as this form, the form of this body, we experience so many other forms, both 
what seem to be physical forms or the objects of the world <laughs> and what seem to be objects in our mind, that is, the forms, the, the form of thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions, and so on. So, by constantly attending to forms, forms in this context doesn't mean just physical form. Anything that is in any way distinguishable from any other thing is a form. So everything we know, all the, all the, <coughs> all the objects of the world, all the thoughts within our mind, all are forms of one kind or another. In other words, Bhagavan used the term form as a synonym for object or phenomena. Um, so he said, grasping and feeding on forms. The implication of that is that the more we attend to forms, to anything other than ourselves, because we are a formless phantom, so any form is something other than ourselves. So, so long as we attend to forms or phenomena or objects, we are feeding and nourishing this ego. And then to drive home this point, he says, leaving form in grass form. We cannot for a moment stand without constantly feeding on forms. And the basic form we, we grasp is a form of a body. So we leave one body, and when we fall asleep, we leave this, this waking body. But in sleep, we then begin dreaming. We project another body. And when we leave that body, we come back to this body. And at the time of death, we project... <laughs> we are forcibly separated from this form that we now take ourselves to be. So we, um, we then go on and grasp some other form, not some other body. Um, and all, whatever we grasp, it's all projected by us. It has no independent, it has no existence independent of ego, as he makes clear in the next verse. So the nature of ego is to come into existence, to endure and to flourish by constantly attending to forms, things other than itself. But he, the most important thing in that verse, he says, Tedinal Otumpidicum. Tedinal Usually, the easiest way to translate it is if sought. But actually, a more accurate translation would be if seeking. But if seeking, it doesn't, it's not clear who is seeking and what is being sought. The, but the implication of Tedinal, if ego seeks itself, in other words, if it seeks its own reality, if it seeks to know what it actually is, in other words, if ego investigates itself, autumpiticum, it takes flight. Autumn um, uh, means running, and uh, pidicum means a grass running. Just like in English, we say take flight. So it's a meta, it's a idiomatic way of saying it runs away, it disappears. So what he re explains to us in this verse is that the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself, but to uh, subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So that is why he says, Atmavichara is nothing but keeping the mind fixed on oneself. Um, keeping mind fixed on oneself means attending to oneself, attending to one's own being, to the fundamental awareness I am. So this is all that is to be done. Bhagavan has explained this so clearly. So if we read Bhagavan's teaching, and it, think that Bhagavan hasn't explained what we have to do, we have not understood Bhagavan's teachings correctly. Um, there are one, so that's the main answer to the question, but there are one or two other points in this question um, um, that need a little bit of clarification. He said, can you, he or she says, can you state what one has to do to obtain Brahman, pure Advaita or pure consciousness? When we talk about obtaining Brahman or obtaining pure Advaita or obtaining pure consciousness, yes, sometimes such terms are used like obtain, attain, but we need to understand what is meant by that. That is, there is no such thing as Brahman or pure awareness other than ourself. We ourself are Brahman, Tattvamasi. So there's no such thing as Brahman other than ourself. So we are already Brahman. So why do we need to attain Brahman? What is meant by attaining Brahman or obtaining Brahman is we seem, when we rise as ego, we seem to separate ourselves from what we actually are, namely Brahman. 
So ceasing to rise as ego, permanently ceasing to rise as ego, by, by permanently ceasing to rise as ego, we remain as we actually are. In other words, we remain as Brahman. So that state in which we cease rising as ego, that is what is metaphorically described as attaining Brahman. So but it's important to emphasize this because we shouldn't think of Brahman or pure Advaita or pure consciousness as something other than ourselves. He uses the word here, pure Advaita. Advaita means ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. So what can attain one only without a second? You need, in order for one thing to attain another thing, you've got two things there. But pure Advaita is that state in which we remain as we actually are, at that which is one without a second. So, though even Bhagavan talks about attaining our real nature, um, we need to understand what is meant by that. We shouldn't take it, but our real nature is something other than ourselves that we need to attain. Our real nature is what we actually are. So we attaining our real nature, or attaining Brahman, is just being as we actually are. And how to be as we actually are? Only by investigating ourselves. <laughs> because the nature of ego, as Bhagavan implies in verse 25 of Volume Lapto, is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to other things, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. Um, and then he goes on to say, but with the sole exception of Bhagavan Ramana Rishi, no one has actually attained pure awareness, have they? This is, um, well, as I said, attaining pure awareness means being as we actually are. Murgana has sung a verse in, um, I think it comes somewhere in Ramananyana Bodham, in which he says, because the ever-unborn has taken birth, countless of the never-dyings have died. The ever-unborn is Brahman, the pure Abhmasarupa, what we actually are, that is ever unborn. That has taken form, birth in the form of Bhagavan Ramana. And as a result of his appearing in this name and form, countless, Murgan says, countless um, innumerable of the never dyings have died. Who are the never dyings? Egos. Egos will never die except by the grace of Guru. And the grace of Guru is not something that comes from outside. Guru is ever shining in our heart. Bhagavan is ever shining in our heart as our own being, as I am. So his grace works through us. So our attempt to turn within and attend to ourself is itself the working of grace. Some people ask, is, is it attained by effort or by grace? That question shows a lack of understanding. Whatever effort we make to turn within is itself the working of grace. So unless we are willing to turn within, we are obstructing the work of grace. So we must yield ourselves to grace by trying to turn within. So um, we, we, we can't say how many have been destroyed by the grace of Bhagavan. Um, Bhagavan himself says in, in uh, Arunachapatikam, how many are there like me who've been destroyed by thinking this hill to be the supreme? Um, so, if we sincerely come to Bhagavan and want to follow his path, if we are ready to surrender ourselves completely to him by turning our entire attention within, we too can attain that. So we shouldn't think, oh, only Bhagavan can attain this, we cannot attain it. That's, then what's the point of his teachings? If only he can attain it, and we cannot attain it. The whole point of his teaching, <laughs> he's showing us that the happiness and the pure awareness and pure being that we are seeking is what we actually are. So it's attainable by all of us. But we have to follow the path. In the 12th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, very, um, very beautifully. Adavalum guru vum unmail verala. God and guru are in truth not different. Just as what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will not return, those who have been caught in the look or glance of guru's grace will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. He gives us a very great assurance if we've been caught in the look of his grace, 
we will certainly be saved by him, we'll never be forsaken. However, he adds an important caveat. Eninum guru karti guru kartya varipadi tavaradu nadakavendam. Nevertheless, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path the Guru has shown. So we have to play our part by trying to turn our attention within and thereby surrendering ourselves to him. But even this part that we are playing is only by his grace. So ultimately, it's all done by him. But we have to cooperate with grace. So long as we rise as ego, we seem to be something separate from grace. So we have to cooperate cooperate with grace by giving ourselves wholly to him. And how can we give ourselves wholly to him? Only by turning our attention within towards ourselves alone and thereby subsiding back into our source. So I hope this is an adequate answer to that question and to anyone else who asks similar type of question. The whole of Bhagavan's teachings, the whole purpose of Bhagavan's teachings is practice. That whatever metaphysical principles Bhagavan has taught us, he's taught us because those metaphysical principles help us to put these, I mean, they, they explain the context in which this practice works, and they clarify what practice actually is. Sorry, I, that was rather a long answer, but does anyone have any other questions related to this or any other subject? There are a few questions, Michael. The first one is, uh, where does the ego come from, according to Ramana? Aren't we supposed to have it as we are one with the self? <laughs> All right, let me start this again. Your cough seems extremely bad. Are you is your are you drinking some water or I've got uh, I've got some hot water I've got some hot water when I need it, yes. All right. You know, sometimes a little honey can be helpful if you have it, but I can I'm not a doctor, as I said, you know. For me, hot water is best. All right, good. Okay, good, thank Michael. You. Thank you. Please it worry, it's very painful to hear you cough, you know. That's all right, that's all right. It's is it the nature of the body. The body is imperfect. It, as Bhagavan said, the body itself is a disease. So if a disease comes to the disease, it's good for us. So let's take it in that way. Let's not worry about this, these things too much. Okay, okay, dear. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Um, right. yeah, Michael, whenever uh, you feel that it's a bit much. <laughs> I will tell you. I've managed to so far, so we'll see how it goes. It's all in here. <laughs> it's, it's just the season. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the question is this: Where does the ego come from, according to Ramana? And the second part is: uh, Aren't we supposed to have it as we are one with the self? And isn't it a part of the experience we should have? I think this is the question, and uh, because of. Uh, I'm not entirely sure about the sentence okay. construction. It's not very clear, but I'll answer it best I, I, I can. I, yeah, and uh, so the person who's asked it, if they feel that I haven't asked the question correctly, you could ask it yourself. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, regarding the last question, isn't ego part of the experience? Um, ego is the experiencer. All experiences are only for ego. There cannot be an experience without an experiencer. So the experiencer of all experiences is ego. So in order to experience anything other than ourself, ego is essential. But why do we want to experience anything other than ourself? <laughs> what is real is only ourself. So experiencing anything other than ourself, as Bhagavan says, is ignorance. Awareness that is multiple, awareness of multiplicity, is ignorance. So it's only when we rise as ego that all other things uh, seem to exist. Um, regarding the first, the first question, we can answer this by simply by carefully considering our experience. We rise and stand as ego um, in waking and dream. 
in sleep, we do not rise as ego. So when we rise as ego in either waking or dream, from where are we uh, rising? We are rising from the state in which there's no ego. In other words, sleep. So what is, what is it that remains in sleep? In sleep, what exists is only ourself, the pure awareness I am. So we ourselves are the source from which we have risen as ego. As simple as that. So um, e ego is just an appearance, just like the, what is the source from which the snake appears? It is the rope. Like that, the source from which ego appears is ourself as we actually are. If we investigate ourselves to see what we actually are, we will see that we were never ego. There never was any such thing as ego. But so long as we're looking outwards, so long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves, we who are attending to other things, we who are experiencing, knowing, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, feeling, whatever, <laughs> the experience of the world eating <laughs> is ourself as ego. Ego cannot arise from anything that it experiences, but the, everything that it experiences depends on ego for its immediate existence. So ego must rise from that which <laughs> exists prior of, prior to, and independent of ego. That is only ourself, ourself as we actually are. In other words, the pure awareness, the pure satchit, I am. Have I adequately answered that question, whoever asked it? And I assume that's... Uh, yes, um, yeah. this is my question, yeah. So I think, yes. Right. The next one. <laughs> yeah, um, somebody's asked you to... Uh, said that, Michael, I love your teachings. Please take a break and rest and feel better soon. It's not my teachings, it's Bhagavan's teachings. So Bhagavan is the one who is using this, this body and mind this worthless body and mind, unfit instrument, but one likes to use unfit instruments. So he wrote Uludunapra and other works with his leaky old pen. When people used to bring very costly pens, Schaefer pens, Parker pens, um, as a gift to Bhagavan, he would say, no, no, take it to the office. They have so many important things to write there. But Bhagavan, you also have important things to write. No, 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 my old... My old pen is fine, it's still... So Bhagavan has a partiality for using worthless instruments that no one else can use. So if he uses this instrument, it doesn't, it's no, no credit to the instrument. It is, uh, who is the one who's using this instrument? So it's all his teachings. He's, if there's anything, when I say in answer to questions, if there's any clarity in anything I say, that clarity comes only from him, not from my impure mind. So it's all, he is the doer. When he wants me to keep quiet, he will make me quiet. We cannot, we cannot even open our mouth but by his grace. I think people are very reluctant to ask questions because you're coughing so much. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, so there is just a general one to everybody, which, and maybe, you know, we can just do that one and, It'd be, uh, which is, why is the world suffering? It, the world isn't suffering. The one who suffers is the one who experiences the world. So because we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be a body, we consequently see a world, and the nature of ego is suffering because ego is a limitation. When we rise as ego, we limit ourselves to the extent of this body. And this body means this form of five sheets. So when we, our real nature is infinite happiness. When we rise as ego, we have seemingly separated ourselves. Of course, we never really separate ourselves. Um, uh, but we have, seem, we, seemingly separate, we have seemingly separated ourselves by rising as ego. And by rising as ego, we impose so many limitations on ourselves. So as ego, we cannot experience the infinite happiness that we actually are. So as ego, we are inevitably dissatisfied. Dissatisfaction is the nature of ego. Dissatisfaction is what gives rise to 
likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. And all these, in turn, give rise to suffering. I want this. I don't want that. That is the nature of ego, to be constantly deciding it likes this, it doesn't like that. So when I get the things I want, I feel a little happy. When I get the things I don't want, then I feel unhappy. So this is the nature of... Suffering is an inevitable part of samsara. Samsara simply means embodied existence. So long as we rise as ego, Bhagavan has said, ego itself is samsara. Because as soon as we rise as ego, we attach ourselves to a body and we undergo all the, all the consequences of this limitation that we have imposed on ourselves. So the, the suffering that we see in the world is a suffering, is a reflection of the suffering within ourselves. And this suffering within ourselves is caused not it's not it's caused only by our looking outwards, our looking away from ourselves. If we look at ourselves, if we have sufficient love to look at ourselves keenly enough, we will see <laughs> we will see that what we actually are is infinite happiness. And we have we have never risen as ego, we have never suffered. But so long as we look away from ourselves with other things, we seem to be this this jiva, this ego, and we see this world full of wars and famines and um, diseases and birth and death and all these things. Inevitably, so, I mean, we, we cannot avoid suffering so long as we rise as ego. If we want to avoid suffering, we need to surrender ourselves completely. In other words, we need to cease rising as ego. And we can cease rising as ego, as Bhagavan makes clear in verse 25 of Ulaganapadu, only by investigating ourselves, only by seeking our own reality, seeking to know what we actually are. So the causes of suffering are not in the external world, it's within us. It's our own likes and dislikes that make some things appear pleasurable, some things appear uh, painful. If we were free of likes and dislikes, there would be no such thing as pleasure or pain. But likes and dislikes are the nature of ego. We cannot, we cannot have an ego free of likes and dislikes because the very nature of ego is constantly grasping things other than itself. So the solution to all suffering, not, nothing we can do, that, that is we can alleviate the suffering in the world. If we see a hungry person, give them food, we alleviate their suffering. Um, but but that's, only, that's only alleviation. That's not real, the real solution. The real solution to suffering is complete surrender of ego. And complete surrender of ego is possible only by turning within to see what we actually are. That is the beauty of Bhagavan's teachings. It, it, it's very interesting because, uh, well, not interesting in a nice way, but when I read this question, uh, it, it really is because these days you pick up the newspaper and, uh, you know, there's always war and suffering and it's all over the pictures. And it's, you know... Uh, so last year it was uh, Ukraine and Russia, and there's a lot of suffering, a lot of killing, uh, terrible things going on. Then you know we have Israel, Palestine, uh, what you know, and there are terrible things going on. And you think about it, uh, but then there are also you know there is I don't know Sudan and there is Yemen and there is this, there's always I think at any point in time at least half a dozen major wars yeah. and countless. Uh, smaller conflicts with all sorts of things which are terrible and tragic and involve a lot of suffering for the people who are involved and so on. And very often when, uh, these days, uh, it's what, what I sometimes find, uh, of course it's terrible. This is the human condition. I mean, uh, um, not very different from what it has been uh, from, the, from the sound, from the look of it for many years and, well, for millennia, and I'm sure it continues, is that, the the emotions which are which go into it is always very interesting you know for the observers you know the the kind of emotions and it's always only with some it's not as if it's for all people or all living beings or all human beings but it's very much 
it's a very, very personally egotistical thing, I think, that, you know, where my sort of psychology is, where my emotions are invested, and what I can identify with, I'm not sure if this is making sense. It's a very kind of a personalized investment also in suffering. Uh, uh, you know, um, and what I feel for, what I don't feel for. And, and at least in my personal experience, what I found is that that as your own mind settles down a bit, yes, there is suffering and it's terrible, but the way you look at it begins to change. And it's not quite as one-sided and in binaries and so so invested, you know. Um, it's the nature of things. And one thinks, and one can understand why the Buddha and Mahavira and so on had this thing of ahimsa and suffering and how to get rid of it, you know, by clarifying your own mind, you know, by looking into your own self or looking into whatever, that this is it. I mean, this has been the teaching now basically for 2,500 years and more, three, well, 3,000 <laughs> and more. And it's very hard for, for us to, for anybody in the world to take it in. And I think the less there is of this taking it in, you know, the more external, of, of course, this is all just in, in in awareness that arises. But the less there is of this, you know, this softening of the mind, you know, calming the mind, uh, you know, just simple things, you know, uh, making it more wholesome, just letting it settle, go into whatever it is, be truthful. The less there is of that, the more there is... Uh, this thing of outer suffering, inner suffering, the attachment to it, you know, uh, the investment in it in various ways. Anyway, it's just mine. It's just so prominent that, yeah. That, yeah. We, we think that the suffering is caused by the external circumstances, and suddenly external circumstances have their role to play. But even if we are fortunate to be in favorable external circumstances, we're still suffering. Even those who who have all that could be desired in this world, they still suffer because they want more. Or so, but ultimately, the suffering is caused by ourselves. That is, even if we consider it, why is war bad? Why is killing bad? Why is disease bad? Why is um, death bad? We. These are all value judgments. We make these value judgments according to our likes and dislikes. We consider war to be bad because we don't like to see such suffering. We don't like to see others suffering. But some people who start wars, I mean, there are people in these, these wars are not, they don't come out of the blue. There are people who actually start the war. So there must be people in this world who think war is good. Because otherwise, why, who would start a war if they didn't think it was good? So it's all ultimately in our own mind. If we, if we could be free of likes and dislikes, nothing would be either good or bad. It's our likes and dislikes that determine what is good and what is bad. Um, but the, as I said, the, the, the likes and dislikes, desires and attachments and so on, to a greater or lesser extent, are inevitable so long as we rise as ego. So we that's why Bhagavan is always pointing us back at the root cause. We all want to avoid suffering. We all know that desire causes suffering. But who is the one who has this desire? Who is the one who is suffering? So Bhagavan is always pointing us back to the root cause of all this which is our rising as ego. There is a question, but I'm not sure what exactly. <laughs> um, is there any point in practice that body identity, oh, is there any point in the practice, I think it means, that body identification is no more, anything less is not acceptable? Body identification is the nature of ego. Dehabimana is ego. That is that which identifies itself with a body is ego. So the point at which Deyabhimana ceases, as body identification ceases, is the point at which ego is destroyed. That is when the practice comes to an end. So uh, 
the cessation of body identification is the goal towards which we are working by practicing. When, when we reach that point, then the, the, the one who is practicing, the one who needs to practice, namely ego, is destroyed. Um, but, but so long as we are practicing, we're practicing because we have this body identification. So we shouldn't imagine some point in future, my practice will become so deep, I'll be free of body identification. Yes, it will happen, but we won't be there. We, well, the one who is doing the practice will no longer be there. But we will be swallowed. That's what Bhagavan says in verse, um, verse 20, I think of Ulutnaptu, Unadal, oh no, verse 21, sorry, Unadal Khan, Becoming food is seeing. In other words, only when we are swallowed by the light of pure awareness have we reached our goal. That is knowing ourselves as we actually are. So we cannot remain as ego and um, attain what we are seeking. But it's only we attain what we are seeking only by surrendering this ego completely, by ceasing forever. <laughs> to rise as ego. Until our practice has gone sufficiently deep, the body identification will remain, um, the likes and dislikes will remain, to, to be, they get diminished, but they still remain until the root is destroyed. The root is ego. And the destruction of ego is the culmination of all the practice. There's a question to everyone, which, which may be sort of clarifying, interesting. Um, the question is, uh, is, uh, is the ego annihilated in someone suffering from dementia? And if so, would this be a good disease? Um, no, ego is not. Because there's, so long as there's someone suffering, who is the one who is suffering? That is ego. So, so long as there's, any experience of any sort, other than the experience of other than the pure awareness I am, any other experience is experienced by ego. Uh, dementia is a state of um, when the, the functioning of the mind is impaired. But it's still, there's someone in, in even in a person who may have completely forgotten even who they are, they, still the same I is there experiencing that confusion. Okay, someone has asked, someone said that the reason for our suffering has karma to do with the previous birth. That is currently is a part of the process, but cause of our suffering, who is the doer of karma? Who is the experiencer of the fruit of karma? It's our self as ego. So all these things have a role to play, but the ultimate cause is only ego. Arising as ego is, that's why Bhagavan, Bhagavan's whole teaching is about ego. A false awareness, I am this body, how to get rid of this? Only by turning within and thereby surrendering ourselves completely. So long as we rise as ego, we inevitably do karma. Karma means action. So by mind, speech and body, we're constantly acting. The actions we do, um, they, we do under the sway of our vasanas. So those actions bear fruit. And the fruit of the experiences that we're given as prarabdhas, the what we are to experience in this lifetime. What we are to experience in this lifetime is not the fruit of actions we've done in this lifetime, but the fruit of actions we've done in previous lifetimes. Um, yeah, they don't... See, oh, yeah, um, there is one. Oh, <laughs> there is another question. Uh, is the extreme fear of death inevitable or will, or it will happen smoothly like being swallowed without being noticed. Um, without be without noticing. Yeah, I I think um, that is we all have fear of death. It may not manifest all the time. We do, we're not constantly thinking about death and the, the fear of death. 
But if we're in sudden danger, our response shows the fear of death is there. Fear, the, fear is the inevitable consequence of desire. Because we have desire for life, desire, desire for this life in this body, we fear to lose it. So fear of death is there in all of us. Even if people say, oh, I'm not afraid of death. They just haven't considered the matter carefully enough. We all fear death because we have desire for life. Desire for life means... <laughs> <laughs> a desire for embodied existence. <laughs> as far as um, <clears throat> that is, we all know that Bhagavan's in the, well, even today, Bhagavan is not quite correct because one who experienced that intense fear of death <clears throat> was the ego. <laughs> <laughs> Was but was aware of itself as I am Venkataraman, that ego got an intense fear of death, and therefore turned within and merged back into its source, and what then shone through that body, the mind and body, that is Bhagavan. So, in the case, in that case, it was fear of death was the final trigger. It may not be the case in for all of us, and so, but. Um, he knows how to bring about the final. He he knows what the final trigger will be to to um, to motivate us to turn within deeply enough to see what we actually are. Someone has asked the question: What did Bhagavan mean when he said your your self realization is the greatest service you can do to the world? In a dream, if you see wars, famines, suffering. What's the greatest good you can do to all the suffering you see in that dream world? Wake up. When you wake up, the the, um, the dream world ceases to exist. And so you've you've that is the waking up from a dream is the greatest act of compassion for all those who are suffer who you see as suffering in your dream. So this is all a dream. If we wake up from this dream, we will put an end to all this suffering. Not only our own suffering, we'll put an end to all the other suffering, but we, we see other suffering, and we suffer to see other suffering. But all that will be ended if we wake up from this dream. And we can wake up from this dream only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. I think that's probably all I can manage for today. Unless there's any other important questions. I think that uh, people that people have asked about your trip and sharing, but I think uh, yeah. we can do that next time. Uh, uh, well, about my trip to India, I was just after such a long time. I was just so happy to be there. Um, though my short, my trip was cut short because of this. I my 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 lung condition is such. I it, they, my lung just couldn't cope with all the dust and air pollution. So um, I knew if I. It stayed longer if the condition would only get worse. Um, so uh, Bhagavan, um, Bhagavan prompted me to cut the, sh- the stay short, um, but it doesn't matter because uh, for me, those two weeks there, I was just so happy to be back in Bhagavan's ashram. It was just, just such a happy time for me. Um, it was short. It was very, very sweet. Michael, thank you so much. Um, you know, Michael, uh, the pollution is worse in the winter and mm. the effect on the lungs is much worse in the winter than in the summer. Mm. Uh, because uh, I have family who have very severe lung conditions uh, mm. and in places like Delhi. And uh, yeah, and the only way is, uh, but, but in the summer, it's usually better. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so maybe, maybe next hard. time I should go in the summer. Mm, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah that, and with uh, very good N95s. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah.
I mean, I lived there for 20 years and it had no effect on me at that time. But this lung condition developed after I left. Um, and um, the the combination of the dust and, I mean, the dust was always there, but now the dust is combined with so much air pollution. So just the road outside of the gate of Ramanasham is so, so uh, polluted. And but this is all... All these changes, uh, it's all, everything is happening according to Bhagavan's will. So I'm just very happy that I was able to be there for two weeks. Oh, no, this is, um, yeah, uh, it's not just you, Michael. I mean, um, I've had perfectly good lungs and I've never, ever had problems in India. I mean, I grew up there, but um, a couple of years ago, um, I don't know, before COVID, I'd gone to first to Mumbai and then to Delhi and I didn't wear a mask. And for the first time, because of that direct, you know, those auto rickshaws and all of yeah, that yeah. or whatever it was, you know, the direct uh, pollution, this was in Mumbai, which was better yeah. than at Delhi. And then by the time I got to Delhi, I mean, at the end of the day, when I came back to London, it would not go. It was that bad. It took, yeah. I don't know, over a month or whatever. I had to take antibiotics, which I don't normally take uh, twice. Yeah. So I think, you know, it really, uh, it's just the pollution. Yeah. Uh, it's created, it creates it's a problem for everybody. But thank you so much. Uh, I hope uh, this is going to get sorted out, Your uh, the lungs soon. Then. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the lung condition is a permanent damage caused by the TB. It's a condition called bronchiectasis. But it just means that I'm, I'm just not able to cope with, even living in London, I used to have problem with the... Uh, the car fumes and everything. Um, but uh, there, the combination of the pollution and the dust, just... Yeah. Um, well, I hope the cough becomes better soon, though. It'll, and, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll take a while, but it'll, get, it'll suddenly get better. So, thank you very much, Michael. Right. And uh, we'll uh, close with the mantra. Um, Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya